Well, it's great to be back tonight for another study of J.C. Ryle's A Call to Prayer. We've just gotten back from Christmas, and I trust everybody had a great break. I hope that uh, the listener was able to enjoy a good holiday celebration with uh, family, friends, and loved ones, and um, pray that tonight's lesson will be um, encouraging to you in your prayer life and in your knowledge of Scripture. We're going to begin tonight by turning to the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. I'd like a volunteer to read that passage before we get started, and of course, after I open us up in prayer. Anyone want to take that passage? Yes, ma'am. All right, let me pray after, uh, after everyone gets turned there, and then Samantha can open us up and reading some scripture. It's one of those places in the Bible that's a little hard to find. It sticks, it sticks together. <laughs> the pages stick together. I forgot where her back is. I'm going to look at the index. There it is. I found it. All right. Right next to Zephaniah. Yes, sir. Everybody got that passage pulled up? All right, let me pray, and then we will uh, read the Word of God together and, and begin our lesson. Father in heaven, it is a joy to be back tonight with dear friends and brothers and sisters in Christ. It is a joy to reflect on the power of prayer and just these these rich spiritual blessings that come from drawing near to your throne of grace. God, I pray that as we study what J.C. Ryle has to say, that we would ultimately not come away impressed with his ability to teach, although he's certainly a great teacher. God, I pray ultimately that we would come away impacted deeply and profoundly by what your word teaches on this most important spiritual discipline in the Christian life. Father, help us to be men and women who are devoted to prayer. Help us to be those who um, who seek out opportunities to encourage one another in the faith and to pray for them as opportunities present themselves, not merely to say that we'll pray for one another, but to actually do it, Father, in the moment and as they come to our mind. Father, I ask that as we now begin this time of study tonight, that your Holy Spirit would Give us wisdom to accurately understand the truths that we're going to be discussing from your word and um, from the uh, teaching of J.C. Ryle. Father, help us to apply these truths to our lives so that we might be radically transformed by them, so that we might magnify you supremely, and so that we might become more and more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who was the model of what it looks like to pray and to depend on you in every aspect of life. We love you, God. We commit this time to you in his name. Amen. All right, Habakkuk three seventeen through nineteen. Sam, go ahead and kick it, kick us off there. Amen. So that's, yeah, I mean, and, and you can, these can be, these can be sung, you know, um, scripture can be sung and, and really it's a joy when we do get to sing it. Um, I know sometimes on Sundays or on Wednesdays, Alec will lead us in, in singing of some Psalms and, and those are really beneficial. And this passage as well, um, I've never heard it sung before, but I'm sure it could be uh, a really moving experience to sing it. But just to reflect on what was said there in that text, um, essentially, uh, what we see here is God 
come what may, good, bad, and different does not matter. I'm going to depend on you. I'm going to praise you. I'm going to serve you. I surrender all of my life to you, God, because I trust you. You're the God of my salvation, and that is enough for me. And my prayer, um, just by way of introduction tonight, and hopefully as we've continued on up to this point in our study of Ryle's work, my ultimate desire is that you and I would be those who come before the Lord with a posture of humility, that we would come before the Lord with a complete resolve to depend upon him in good times and in bad times, because he alone is worthy, and because where else can we go but to the one from whom eternal life comes, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And um, I, I just thought that would be a good word for us to put at the forefront of our minds as we dive into sections 7 and 8, which is where we're going to be at tonight in J.C. Ryle's work. I'm going to begin by reading uh, that first little section there from uh, the bold subheading, Sorrow Abounds, to the, the text that comes right before the second subheading on the following page, The Answer to Sorrow. So you guys follow along with me in your copy of Ryle's work, and uh, to the listener, uh, I would just encourage you to do the same if you have the... Um, the text in front of you as we read. Ryle says the following, Sorrow abounds. I ask lastly whether you pray, because prayer is one of the best means of happiness and contentment. We live in a world where sorrow abounds. This has always been in its state since sin came in. There cannot be sin without sorrow. And until sin is driven out from the world, it is vain for anyone to suppose he can escape sorrow. Some without doubt have a larger cup of sorrow to drink than others, but few are to be found who live long without sorrows or cares of one sort or another. Our bodies, our property, our families, our children, our relations, our servants, our friends, our neighbors, our worldly callings, each and all of these are fountains of care. Sicknesses, deaths, losses, disappointments, partings, separations, ingratitude, slander, all these are common things. We cannot get through life without them. Some day or other they find us out. The greater are our affections, the deeper are our afflictions. And the more we love, the more we have to weep. I think that's a really um, profound passage to read after having just read that section from Habakkuk chapter 3. And um, just by way of getting some group discussion going, I would like a volunteer to read from the book of Philippians chapter 4 verses 4 through 9. So in light of what we read right there at the end of Habakkuk, chapter 3, in light of what we just read from Ryle here in section 7 of his work, A Call to Prayer, I want us to also read from Philippians 4, verses 4 through 9. And as we do, I want us to think about this question. I want us to think of the relationship between joy and contentment in a fallen world. So what's the relationship between joy and contentment in a fallen world? And how does prayer help us to ultimately obtain those realities in our lives? How does prayer allow us to have joy and contentment in a fallen world? Um, on the basis of what Ryle's just written, on the basis of what we just read from Habakkuk 3, and now, of course, as we turn to Philippians 4, how does this text reinforce the relationship between prayer, joy, and contentment in a fallen world. Would somebody like to read that passage for us? I can. Thank you, sir. Four through nine, right? Yes, sir. Rejoice in the Lord always, 
And again I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which you which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do. And the God of peace shall be with you. Amen. All right, guys. So what do you what comes to mind just having read that passage and thinking about joy and contentment and um, thinking about how these things can be attained in our lives through prayer specifically? What what do you see in the text that sticks out to you or just in light of even what we read in light of the um, passage in Habakkuk and from what Ryle said? Right. So there's so there's a relationship between what we think about and having the peace of God, that experiential right. We have the peace of God objectively through faith in Christ, right? Um, the God who was once our enemy is now our heavenly father. We've been reconciled to him. We have peace with him objectively. But that experiential subjective aspect of peace comes from thinking about um, whatever's true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good repute. Excellent, worthy of praise, as Paul lists there in verse eight. I, I like that, Sam. Any any other thoughts on that passage? So for me, when I look at this text. Um, verse 4, you have a, a command or an exhortation. Rejoice in the Lord always, Paul says. Again, I say rejoice. So you need to have joy, Paul says. You need to have happiness. You need to have contentment in this life. And then he goes on, verse 6 and 7 is sandwiched right there in the middle. Um, we've got, um, how, you've got a description of how prayer um, is accompanied um, with verse 7, the peace of God. So be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be known to God. So rejoice, verse 4, middle of this passage of Scripture, verse 6. Prayer is a means whereby um, whereby we can have joy, whereby we can rejoice in the Lord, verse 7. Uh, echoing what Sam said in verse 9, um, the result of our prayer, the result of our um, coming to God with thanksgiving and with our requests is that the peace of God is going to guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And then Paul gives us some examples of what we can fill our minds with to, again, as he reiterates back in verse 9, to have this, this subjective experiential peace or contentment. And ultimately, as he commands us back in verse 4 to have, that joy 
it's all interrelated with coming to God in a uh, posture of prayer. If we pray to the Lord, if we meditate on his character, if we meditate on Christian virtues, um, as we see modeled through the lives of Christ or the models of other heroes of the faith, um, like the Old Testament saints or like Paul, whenever we fix our minds on those realities, we are the, we are going to experience the inner-rooted peace, the inner-rooted joy, the inner-rooted contentment that comes by God himself. And prayer is a means of facilitating that. Um, and another thing that that I uh, have really been trying to grow in over the last couple of years is as important as prayer is, and, and I mean, that's what we've been studying now for the past several weeks. We're studying how prayer leads to all of these blessings in the Christian life. But sometimes just getting alone with God and just sitting and, and, and meditating on who he is and on his promises as they've been revealed in scripture and on his faithfulness to you in your life. Sometimes that can help you experience that inner-rooted contentment, joy, peace, whatever adjective you want to use to describe it. Sometimes meditation is an equally powerful tool that God uses to, to flood ourselves with that contentment and joy that we long to have in a fallen world. Those are just some thoughts that I had as I was studying this text, and I think that that's what Ryle's going for. He's saying in that section I just read, he's saying, like, listen, you're going to have some really significant struggles in this life. And the more you care about something, the more invested you are in something, the greater value that something has in your life, it's going to cause all the more sorrows and all the more hardships and pain if those things either don't go the way you want them to go or if somebody that you love uh, gets sick or passes away or, um, you know, for me as a minister, if your ministry doesn't appear to be bearing fruit as you hope that it would, whatever the case may be, there's going to be times in your life where things you put great value and great stock in, it could potentially really break your heart. And that's why you've constantly, as we do life in a fallen world, we've got to constantly come back to God's character, his faithfulness, drawing near to him in prayer, and allowing the Holy Spirit to remind us. Again, not objectively, those things are fixed realities, but subjectively, as we experience them, we've got to allow the Holy Spirit to remind us of who we are in Christ and what God's done for us and what he's promised to do for us in Scripture. Anyone have any any other thoughts that came to mind um, at this point before we move on? What does your verse 5 say? It's... Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. See, mine says reasonableness. Reasonable. And yours said moderation. Moderation. Mm-hmm. Like those are qualities that are only going to be apparent if you were in joy mm-hmm. with the Lord and in yeah. prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. No, that's really that's good. A quality you can't really have if you're not those things. Right. Because we know that peace and gentleness are fruits of the Spirit. So if, if, if you, again, objectively, if we're in Christ, these are true of us objectively. But subjectively, if we're, not, if we're not intentional in coming before the Lord in prayer and flooding our minds and our hearts with um, his character and, and, and the truth of his word, there's going to be some of these qualities that, that, we just don't, that we don't have that experiential realization of. And um, it's kind of like this, a good way, another maybe helpful illustration that comes to mind just off the cuff here is like when you commit a sin you know as a christian 
that that sin was paid for in full at the cross, that you are objectively righteous in the sight of God because of Jesus Christ's life, his perfect righteousness that's been credited to you by faith. But experientially, you feel that that shame or that that sorrow for having sinned against your God, um, just like a kid feels um, sadness or disappointment when they let their parents down, we feel at a much greater level sadness and shame um, and, uh, and sorrow when we let our Heavenly Father down. And um, it, 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 it's that loss temporarily of that experiential realization of God's favor. We still have it because we're in Christ, but the subjective aspects impact. It's kind of the same thing here. If, if we're not drawing near to the Lord in prayer, especially during hard times of our life, if we're not meditating on the character and promises of God, when we face hardships, we're going to lose some of that contentment, some of that peace that we at least experientially feel when we are doing those things. Um, I think I think that's a good reminder for us that, man, we need to we need to be faithful to prayer and we need to be faithful to meditation at all seasons of life, but especially when times are tough. And I think I think that's what Ryle's going for here. That's really good thoughts, guys. So um, the next section uh, subheading is titled "The Answer to Sorrow," and there's three paragraphs. One's a really small one, so I'd like a volunteer to take the three-lined uh, small paragraph and then the one that immediately follows, and then somebody else to take that third paragraph there. So two volunteers to read, please. All right, Sam will take the long... Sam will take the, 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 the two one, uh, the small one and the, the normal size one, and who wants to take that third one? I'll take the third one. Thanks, Mo. Sam, whenever you're ready. And what is the best means of cheerfulness in such a world as this? How shall we get through this valley of tears with least pain? I know no better means than the regular habitual practice of taking everything to God in prayer. This is the plain advice that the Bible gives, both in the Old Testament and the New. What says the psalmist? Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. In Psalms 50, 15. Mm -hmm. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Psalm 55, 22. What says the Apostle Paul? Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, 6 or 7. What says the Apostle James? Is any afflicted among you? Let him pray. James 5.13 This was a practice of all the saints who, whose history we have recorded in the scriptures. This is what Jacob did when he feared his brother Esau. This is what Moses did when the people were ready to stone him in the wilderness. This is what Joshua did when Israel was defeated before the end of... Can you say that? Aye. Aye. This is what David did when he was in danger at Kira. Uh, this is what her, like, Hezekiah. Hezekiah did when he received the letter from Sennacherib. This is what the church did when Peter was put in prison. This is what Paul did when he was cast into the dungeon at Philippi. Hmm. Okay, so in reflecting on this passage that we've, we've just read together, um, I, I do want us to, to think about this question here. Um, 
how does God's sovereignty and his omnipotence factor into the discipline of prayer? In other words, if God is sovereign, if God is capable of bringing us out of hardships in this life, then why must we pray? Ryle's saying, hey, take everything to God in prayer. He cited all this scripture. There's a ton that we just read together. I see one, two, three, and four explicitly reference uh, uh, scripture citations in that third paragraph there. He's referencing stories that took place throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. So Ryle's given us scripture after scripture after scripture. This is why you need to take things to God in prayer. This is the example that other saints have done in going to God in prayer when they were in hard situations. So when we think about the sovereignty of God, when we think about the fact that God is all-powerful, when we recognize the fact that God is always capable in and of himself of bringing us out of a hard situation, regardless of if we pray or not. God has the ability to do that. He can certainly do that. But as we think about prayer right here in, the, in this particular section of what Ryle's trying to communicate to us, what do you think about how prayer factors in to God's sovereign purposes into the fact that he is all-powerful and rules over all things as the king of kings. What do you guys think about that? Shows his glory. Shows his glory? And his purpose is made out by prayer. Okay, now that's, a, that's a good thought there. Uh, elaborate on that a little bit if, if you want. As, when you talk about this idea of, of God's purposes being carried out through prayer, Explain that, and that's a really good thought. Um, well, what's the point? Well, okay, let's say, you know, what's the point of something be? I, I, I try to say this right. God can do anything, He right. can save anybody. Right. But. How do you know the glory of God if you don't know your own brokenness? How do you know mm-hmm. His grace if you don't know how terrible your sin is? How, and that's, I'm not saying that's the same thing with prayer, but prayer is, it it's the outward appearance of having, I guess you could say, faith. If yeah. on the right track, having faith. Uh, it's us responding, responding to 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 to, to our to God's. It's us responding to truths about what God can do, and it's calling us to action. Is that, is that kind of what you're going for there in a way? Okay. No, that's, good. that's a good thought. Any, any other thoughts on that? that? That's actually very similar to one. I had two thoughts that came to mind, um, and, and that was close to one of the two, and we'll, we'll revisit that. But I want to see if you guys had any thoughts uh, before we go there. Well, it makes me think of like, when you are feeling deeply afflicted, you often don't have the words to communicate that. And what it says is when we have groanings too deep for words, Mm -hmm. the Holy Spirit's the one interceding on our behalf, like with the will of God in mind. So it aligns us more with his will. Mm -hmm. You know, if we are going to him during those times especially, um, and you'll find joy if you understand what his will is and you understand what it is if you go to him in prayer. Sure. Sure, yeah, no. Uh, I've heard it said uh, prayer is is admitting that God is sovereign and then submitting ourselves to him, submitting our will to whatever his will might be. Mm-hmm. Uh, prayer doesn't change God, it changes us. Um, that's the gist of that. Any other thoughts there before I I give you my crack at it? 
Brother Terry says that all the time. When you pray for somebody, that God is also changing you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's why Jesus says pray for your enemies. Because if you pray for your enemy, it's going to be really, really hard to, to stay upset with them. You might be upset with a sin they've committed or, or something that they're doing that's just not biblical or not honoring to God. But you won't foster bitterness and, and deep-rooted um, unrighteous or unjust um, resentment towards them or, or even hatred towards them in some extreme cases. It's very hard to, to really have those emotions for somebody that you're genuinely praying for. Um, again, does it change the fact that if they're doing something that's sinful or unbiblical that, that you just overlook that, that there needs to be accountability, there needs to be a, a loving and gracious calling to repentance because it's the most unloving thing to do if you know that what they're doing is, is harmful to themselves and that it detracts from the glory of God. It's the most unloving thing you can do to just let them continue on down that path. It's the most loving thing you can do to point them to the truth of Scripture, right? First Corinthians thirteen six, um, love rejoices in the truth. It um, it does not rejoice in unrighteousness. So, love and truth go hand in hand, and um, it, it's essential that when we when we're praying for somebody that we're even if they're an enemy, even if they're somebody who's living in a pattern of sin, it's imperative that when we pray for them, we're fostering a mindset of Lord direct them to the truth and as you do so allow me to be a means of showing them your love which is going to go hand in hand with truth but uh, allow me to be compassionate and patient and gracious towards them as we will go through that process of hopefully bringing them to repentance so i think there's i think there's definitely value in um, reminding ourselves that that prayer is changing us in many ways whether we're praying for an enemy or for a circumstance or for a loved one or whatever the case may be i had two um specific thoughts that I wrote down as I was thinking about um, everything that Ralph's saying. He's going scripture, 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 Old Testament, New Testament circumstance of the saints are going to God in prayer when they're in the middle of hardships. And when we think about the fact that God's sovereign and that he has all the power he needs to do whatever he wants to do regardless of anything that we do, right? He can do those things. We recognize that. Um, I thought about prayer factoring into those realities in at least these two ways. And I've got some scriptures that we can go to to, to kind of put some, some uh, form around these ideas. The first idea that I had was that God commands through his word that we pray to him at all times and in all circumstances. This reality in and of itself should draw us to prayer during good times and bad. In other words, if God's sovereign and all-powerful, why should we pray? How does prayer factor into that? Well, we're just simply commanded to, to pray. I mean, that's, that's very basic. That's, that's kind of maybe an overly simple way of thinking about the issue. But, I mean, if we were more consistent and just being very simple, childlike faith, hey, if the Bible says it, that settles it, let's do it, I think we would see the power of God working profoundly in our life. I think we get into trouble when we sometimes outsmart the, the simple, easy, basic truths of Scripture um, when they're, they're laid out right there so easily that anybody can see them, understand them, and apply them. And prayer is one such thing. Um, there's four texts. I'll read the first two. Um, I need somebody to help me out with the, the, the last two. First uh, Thessalonians 5.17. It's a very small verse. Someone wants to take that. First Thessalonians 5.17. And the second is 1 Peter 5.7. They're both short passages. I think these are all short passages, frankly, but 517. I can do 
Thessalonians. All right, and then First Peter five seven. First Peter, First Peter five seven. Yeah. That's good. All right. Cool. So, um, the first two passages I'm just going to read again, thinking about if God is sovereign and all powerful, why should we pray? How does prayer factor into those biblical truths? Um, well, these passages just flatly and clearly indicate that God calls us to pray. So listen to this. Luke 18.1, one text that demonstrates this reality. It says, Now Jesus was telling them, referring to his disciples, he was telling his disciples a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. I mean, that that's pretty simple, right? In any circumstance you're in, every aspect of life that you might find yourself in by God's providence, pray and don't lose heart. Remember that God is sovereign, that he's good, that he's for you if you're in Christ, that he's all-powerful, that he's king over all of creation, and trust him with that. Go to him, pray, Lord, I recognize your power, I recognize your sovereignty, I recognize that your will is going to be done. Help me to glorify you in this circumstance. This is what I would like to happen. If it's your will, I pray you would make it happen. But God, ultimately, you're on the throne, so I trust you. Pray at all times and don't lose heart. Ephesians 6.18, Paul says this. He says, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view... Be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. So, I mean, pray at all times. Um, And when he says pray at all times in the Spirit, this gets back to what Samantha was saying about praying in accordance with the will of God. If you have the Spirit of God residing within you as a believer, even at times where you might not have the, you might not think you have the words to, to pray, you might not know exactly how you should pray, if you just step out in faith and start praying, just start, the Spirit of God will give you the words to say in that moment. He will, with with words too deep for utterances, he will express the will of God through your prayers. Um, there's been times, some of my best prayers, at least experientially, God might not think they're that great, but at least for me experientially, I think that some of my best prayers is when I'm just at my wit's end, I don't know what to say, I don't know what to do, and I just start, just start speaking. Lord, I, I, I'm at a loss here. Help me. And then before you know it, you're in a great time of communion and intimate fellowship with God. And you feel that experiential joy and peace that surpasses all understanding. First Thessalonians 5.17. Um, you'll laugh because uh, I said it was a short passage and it's one of the shortest in the entire Bible, I think. Pray without ceasing. There you go. Pray without ceasing. Not- noticing a... Uh, a pattern here, Jesus says, pray at all times, don't lose heart. Paul in two separate places here is saying, you need to pray without ceasing. You need to pray at all times. And Peter's going to say the same thing. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Right, not some, not almost all. He says all of your anxieties, or in some translations, all of your cares. Give them to God. Um, so if you're, if you're in agreement with Jesus, Paul, and Peter, you're in a pretty good club, you know? Um, and if they're all saying that we need to pray at all times and just step out in faith and, and trust our cares and trust our requests to God, I think the Lord is going to do a, a mighty work. It might not happen overnight. could happen overnight, but it often happens over time and over, and over trusting in the Lord over the long haul. Um, good reminder. Now, so that was the first thought that I had. Um, God commands us through his word that we ought to pray to him at all times and in all circumstances. 
Reality number two, um, and this kind of gets on what you were saying, Morgan, and, and this might put a little bit of, of um, a form around uh, the main idea of what you're trying to say. Um, I, I, I thought that um, in light of these realities and how it relates to prayer, number two, God has not only ordained everything that would ever happen in the universe from eternity past. He's decreed everything that will happen from before the foundation of the world. But he's also ordained the means whereby his purposes are going to be accomplished. So when we say prayer is a means or when we say God uses means, a simple way of putting it is God uses tools or he uses circumstances in order to accomplish what he has predestined from eternity past. So anytime you and I pray, God, this is what's remarkable, God has already predestined every word you would say in that prayer and he's predestined if he's going to answer that prayer if he does answer the prayer when he's going to answer it how he's going to answer it it all fits together in one unified tapestry but as we experience it in and of ourselves when we're praying as our as our hearts feel led to do so as the spirit leads us to do so we can rest assured that god's going to use that in his sovereign will to accomplish his purposes there's a passage in the book of revelation when i first learned about this 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 is profound here. Let me pull it up here. Um, this wasn't in my notes, but it just came to mind. Here we go. Revelation five eight. And this is in the context of the heavenly vision. Uh, the book with the seven seals is being set forth. Nobody in heaven is worthy to open up the book except for um, we see a graphic image of Jesus who he's, he's portrayed as a lamb who had been slain, but he's also described as a lion from the tribe of Judah. So we see this really just graphic image of Jesus who's being portrayed as the only one who's worthy to open up the book with the seven seals. And then right here in verse 8 of Revelation 5, this is fascinating. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So our prayers, like again, I don't know how literal this is, but just taking it at face value for the time being. Think about a, just the just insanely large bowl of every prayer that's been offered by the people of God being collected together. I mean, that's the visual anyways we have here. And that, that, that is how prayer fits into the sovereign, eternal purposes of God. They all, they're precious to God. He collects them, as it were, in a bowl of incense. And he, before the foundation of the world, has orchestrated every prayer that would ever be offered throughout all of redemptive history to ultimately either be answered or not answered, if they are answered, to be answered whenever he pleases, however he pleases, and we know ultimately it's going to be for his supreme glory and for the good of his people. So God is sovereign, he's all-powerful, yes, but he uses our prayers, he commands us to pray, but he uses those prayers also to accomplish his purposes. It pleased him to do that. And um, John Piper, I don't think I'm butchering this quote too much, I don't have it written down, but... um, he said, how do you not know that the 1,001st time isn't going to be the answer that God, or isn't going to be the prayer that God uses to answer that of which you've been praying now for a 1,000 times? Yeah. 
It could be the next one. You never know. God is gracious. He, he is merciful to hear our prayers and answer it. And he also is patient. Sometimes it takes time for God to answer our prayers. If we're praying according to his will, if we're praying biblical prayers, God is going to use that prayer some way to sanctify us and to ultimately accomplish his purposes. Just some food for thought there. Um, I wrote this down just by way of conclusion. I said, when we recognize these two biblical and theological realities, we have the freedom to engage in prayer just like our Lord Jesus did when facing hardships. We can wholeheartedly trust in the sovereignty and omnipotence of God, but do so in a way that is not flippant or presumptuous. In other words, we can have the posture of not my will, but thy will be done as we rest in the good, perfect, powerful, and eternally sovereign purposes of our Heavenly Father. And remember, Jesus, the, the model of prayer, the, the, the greatest example of prayer in the history of humanity, had perfect communion with God the Father at every aspect of his earthly life, and of course we know from eternity past in the Godhead itself. And even Jesus, not my will, but thy will, Father, be done. That is the model. That is the model, and I think that is where we are going to ultimately get to if we will, as we just got done talking about several minutes ago, if we would just spend time when we are in hardships. Do it when you're not in hardships, but especially when you are in hardships. Pray to the Lord. Just be open and honest with him. Don't be flippant. Don't don't turn it into a game, but just come before him. Cast your cares on him. Think about who he is. Think about who he's revealed himself in Scripture and the promises he's given us in scripture and the faithfulness that he showed us throughout our life and let that fill your soul with joy contentment peace and watch how you're going to be driven all the more to pray um just some thoughts there that that come to mind well i'm going to continue now the bottom of page 15 i'm going to read that whole section our friend is jesus so Ryle writes, the only way to be really happy in such a world as this, referring to the fallen world that we live in, is to be ever casting all our cares on God. It is trying to carry their own burdens that so often makes believers sad. If they did, excuse me, if they will tell their troubles to God, he will enable them to bear them as easily as Samson did the gates of Gaza, Judges 16.3. If they are resolved to keep them to themselves, they will find one day that the very grasshopper is a burden. There is a friend ever waiting to help us if we will unbosom to him our sorrow, a friend who pitied the poor and sick and sorrowful when he was upon earth, a friend who knows the heart of man, for he lived 33 years as a man among us, a friend who can weep with the weepers, for he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, a friend who is able to help us, for there never was earthly pain he could not cure. That friend is Jesus Christ. The way to be happy is to be always opening our hearts to him. Oh, that we were all like that poor Christian who only answered when threatened and punished, I must tell the Lord. And Ryle concludes this section with these words. He says, Jesus can make those happy who trust him and call on him, whatever be their outward condition. He can give them peace of heart in a prison, contentment in the midst of poverty, comfort in the midst of bereavements, joy on the brink of the grave. There is a mighty fullness in him for all his believing members, a fullness that is ready to be poured out on everyone that will ask in prayer. Oh, that men would understand 
that happiness does not depend on outward circumstances, but on the state of the heart. Man, that, that, when I read that earlier today, I was on the brink of tears because that's profound. That is profound stuff. And I want us to think in light of what Riles just said here. Very moving section. Somebody flip open to Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. Somebody read that for us. And we're going to, after reading that text, I'll, I'll have a, I have a um, question or a thought that I want us to reflect on. We have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Which one did you say read? That was it. Uh, and then just read the next. Read the next. Did you uh, say 15 and 16? Yeah. 15 and 16, okay, yeah. Yes, yeah. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help. Very good. So everything everything that Ryle just said, now in light of Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, my question, my, my thought that I want us to have, here it is. What should be the relationship and outcome of reflecting on Jesus Christ's earthly ministry and our prayer life? How should our prayer lives be reflected as we think about Jesus and what he did in his earthly ministry? Think specifically about how verses 15 and 16 relate together in Hebrews 4. I think there's a profound application for us here. And I think it fits in nicely with what Ryle just said. What does it say Jesus does? It says, it says what he cannot do in the first half of verse 15. So by way of flipping that around. What does Jesus do? It says, Jesus, as our high priest, it says he, it says we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, so Jesus can thereby do what? If, he, if, if it's saying that he's not like this, what is he like? He does sympathize with us, right? So Jesus does sympathize with our weaknesses, and how do we know that? Second half of verse 15 it says, Jesus has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So let's stop there. How does that make you feel? Or how should it make us feel? might not make you feel a certain way at all times because we're fickle. Our emotions can go up and down. But very, very practically speaking, think about every temptation that you struggle with. And then think about how Jesus, when faced with that same temptation... In a fallen world, he overcame it perfectly in thought, word, and deed. What, it, what does that do for you as you think about that? How does that resonate with you? He's in constant communion with the Father. Yeah. I mean, and still pray, you know. Like right. He would just rely on who he was or anything else. Like right. He still sought out the Father. Absolutely. Um, go ahead, buddy. Not laying down who he is, but yet letting his man clear that conversation. Um, it, it, we were talking about anxiety, right? But how, 
it was after Sunday. Uh, it was after church Monday. We were talking about God's, you know, He is all God and He is all man. Uh, but His man part, or His human nature? His, his human nature, because uh, we were talking about, you know, He's God, for He knows all things. But that doesn't excuse the human nature. Y'all remember that conversation? Yeah. There's no, no, uh, yeah. He, he didn't cease to be God. But the divine, the omnipotence, he didn't give that to the human nature. Because we're talking uh, about yeah, uh, yeah. Jesus, but as it, in his, in his human nature, he had limitations. He faced hardships. He faced temptation. He he suffered. Right. He, he grief and, and anguish and all the rest. But he did it in a way that was not sinful. Jesus always responded to every circumstance in the way that we should respond. If there was a response that, if there's a situation where anger is the appropriate response, Jesus would be angry and he would be angry without sin. If there was a situation where grieving was the right response, Jesus would grieve, but he would do so as one without, as one not without hope, right? He would do so in a way that was sinless and so on. Is that what you were going yeah, for? Yeah, because we were, uh, I remember I was asking because I was listening to R.C. Sproul, uh, dealing with anxiety. Right. And that made me, uh, me and Jim and I talked, and that made us think of the, and whenever he was in the garden, uh, people always comment like how he was scared or, or he was fearful or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to. No, that's, no, that's yeah. good. So let me, let me make this a little bit more concrete for us. Just, just to. One thing I wanted to say before you. Yeah. Is just, you know, what he's saying is that, we don't have a distant high priest that doesn't understand where we're coming from. So you go to him boldly, knowing that he understands exactly, mm-hmm. exactly what you're what you're feeling because he's he's felt it too. Mm-hmm. But like you said, without a sin, so it's not like you know this is this untouchable, mm-hmm. this untouchable God. Mm-hmm. He's like, look, you approach the throne. Knowing that your heavenly Father cares for you, Amen. That He came and He did this for us, so that we would have this to be able to talk to Him, Amen. To be able to speak, so you can tell Him anything, anything. You know how anything. Right. No, that's 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 basically what I was going to say. Because oh, I wasn't trying. To no, I'm glad you said it. So I mean, I'm I'm glad you said it because, like, what I was going to say, just by way of illustration, is this: like, how how often do we? Whenever we hear somebody say, yeah, I can relate to that, or I've been through something like that before, we immediately feel a connection. We feel, we feel like, man, like, I can go to this person, right? I can talk to them. We can, we can, they can hear me out, and, and they can give me advice or counsel or what have you. So with Jesus, every single circumstance that imaginable where we're going to be faced with temptation or sin, Jesus could relate in that struggle. He never gave into it. He was sinless. He was victorious in every temptation and every circumstance that was trying for him. But Jesus, we know as our high priest, he can sympathize with our weaknesses. And look what the writer of the Hebrews says in verse 16. In light of Jesus, who can sympathize with our weakness, who has had temptation in every aspect as we have, but yet never gave in, never sinned, Therefore, here's what we should do, the writer says. We should draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Exactly what you said, Alan. 
It's because of Jesus's life, his temptations that he faced, his victory over those sins and over those temptations in light of all of those truths that we know when we go to him, he sympathizes with us, he cares for us, and by his spirit, he's going to give us the grace to progressively overcome whatever it might be that we're struggling with as we're sanctified, as we're further conformed into the moral character of Christ. That's that application from this text. Yesterday I was sitting on the front porch and I was praying and talking to God and just saying, God, I know... I know that I can't see you, and I know I'm not supposed to want to, but boy, it would be nice if you would just talk to me and tell me, this is what you need to do. This is where you need to go. Right, right. And I was like, I I know that's not right. Well, we've all been there. I'm sorry for, you know, but you do. You're like, okay, just give me the plan. Point me, you know, tell me, because you want to know and, and you feel weak. Mm-hmm. You know, especially when you feel like you're in, you're not good enough, or you're not, you don't do as good as you feel like you should do, and you feel down. And you're like, Lord, just please, you know, just tell me that I'm doing doing what you want. Tell me right. that I'm, you know, because you want it. And then, then I was sitting there, and it was like a, a breeze blowing in the trees, and I'm like. Are you trying to tell me something? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right. Because I, right. But I, 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 but you know, I, you do feel that peace. You're like, okay, yeah. you know what? Quit worrying about it. Just do the best that you can. And God is in control. Don't worry about it because I beat myself up. Like I said, I, I'm my worst critic. You know, I'm my own worst critic. Right. But I have to tell myself, don't do that. Don't do that. You, your heart, you want to honor God. You do the best you can. It's God's word that saves people. Amen. Not man's manipulation of it or man's ability to be able. It's God's word. And, and it doesn't matter, you know, how you speak. You know, you honor God. Right. And, and he'll, he'll, he'll take care of it. But sometimes you're just like, you know, you just want to, I don't know. I, I, well, no, we, we've all been there. And, and the reality is I think there's a lot of ways that we could go with that. Um, at least ways that I've thought and that I've heard other people think of. Um, very practically speaking, I think, unfortunately, one of the one of the downfalls of our fall into sin when Adam and Eve rebelled and, and of course, in them and, and the thousands of years since the the fact that humanity is a fallen um, race, we are fallen creatures, that puts a barrier up Absolutely. for us to be able, even as redeemed, even as in Christ, we're still sinful, right? The, the, the truth of justification doesn't mean we're no longer sinful. It means that we're justified. We're declared as if we never sinned, but we're still sinners. We still are not inherently righteous, and that causes us to have a wall in our at least face-to-face communion with God that Adam and Eve had. Look, um, I've heard R.C. Sproul point this out. Matthew 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And R.C., when he talk, he always goes to this text. He says, you want to know why you can't see God unless he performs a supernatural work? You want to know why you can't see it? Because it says in Isaiah, the whole world is full of his glory. You want to know why you can't see it, though, as you would have been able to Absolutely. in the garden? It's because you're not pure in heart. Mm-hmm. But one day, yes. you will be. And um, I think part of God in his wisdom and in his, 
his purposes for humanity living in a fallen world is his people. Again, God could eradicate. He could, he could sanctify us right at the moment of salvation. But God wants to teach us, hey, in light of a fallen world, part of the hardship you're going to have to face is learning to walk by faith, learning to depend on me, though you can't see me face to face. You can't see the world as initially Adam and Eve could before the fall, but I'm still going to make myself known to you. I'm still going to have a relationship with you. And by his grace, he's given us his word. And this is the second point I wanted to make briefly. If we could just master scripture, and we're never going to fully master it. We're going to spend our whole lives and still not even come close to exhausting the truths of scripture. But scripture in a fallen world and a lot of our sin it has all the answers we need for life and godliness. And, you know, when, when, uh, when Jesus said it is good that I go to be with the Father, um, you know, our initial knee-jerk reaction is, man, I just wish I could, I wish Jesus was right here with me. And, I mean, we all, we all believe that. We all would love that. But by God's grace and in his wisdom, he's given us his word so that the message of Jesus, the, the truth of God, can go forth to all parts of the world at one and the same time. And for reasons not only to God, that's the way he's ordained it in a fallen world. I think part of it is, is, is punishment for sin, a reality of separate. There's still an experiential separation in terms of seeing God face to face. And I think also, without trying to get into a rabbit trail here, Jesus, in his humanity... He's confined to one spot. He's got a body. So if Jesus was here with me in, in, in this room with us, and, and there's not a Bible, there's not a word that's distributed worldwide, then you know we've got Jesus, but where, where's, the, where's the truth of God? Where's the, where's the New Testament going to go? And when Jesus went to the Father and he poured out the Spirit, we have a New Testament that develops. We have the fullness of God's special revelation. We have the completion to the Old Testament. And now... At every period and every generation of history till Jesus returns, any person who has a Bible can know God, know how to have a relationship with God, and know how to live for his glory, and know how to pray, and so on and so forth. Um, that was kind of a tangent there, but I, I can relate, Alan. There's times where I'm like, man, Lord, what I would give to have Jesus just appear to me and have a conversation with me. Well, what I, but i got to remind myself, I've got the word, you know? <laughs> well, I understand what you're saying, yeah. but I... You know, to me, it's just you, you, especially when you're feeling low, you just want to. Absolutely. And so what I did is I started listening to, uh, I was I was listening to the Bible, you know, listening to right. the scripture. And, and just, you know, it, it encouraged you. Like you said, you remember, you know, you remember who you are. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I know, but every now and then it's like, you know, you just, you just talking to God. Right. You know, God, what, you know, if you could just show me, just show me a little bit. I mean, I know, right. I know that I'm not worthy and I, I'm sorry. I, I, you know, it's like this morning I was praying and I was like, how do, how do you even start? How do you even start? You know, what do you, what mm-hmm. do you say? What do you, you know, because you, I mean, you, you want it to be right, but then you know that it's not going to be right. I mean, unless God, you, you understand what right. I'm saying is. So you just speak your speak your heart, and I mean, that's that's what we're talking about. Right. Is bring everything, yeah, to God in prayer. Everything, every every decision, and ask God. You know what? 
you know, and, and, mm-hmm. and what you, you know, what he wants you to do. So that, so I understand. Right, right. Great thoughts, guys. Um, we're on to the last paragraph, and we're, we're at an hour now, and Section eight's long, and I think this would be a great section to save for um, when we get more of our youth back after New Year's. But just by way of close, um, would somebody read that final paragraph right there under the subheading, Results of Prayer? Go for it, Michelle. Appreciate you. Prayer can lighten crosses for us, however heavy. It can bring down to our side one who will help us to bear them. Prayer can open a door for us when our way seems hedged up. It can bring down one who will say, this is the way, walk ye in it. Prayer can let in a ray of hope when all our earthly prospects seem darkened. It can bring down one who will say, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Prayer can obtain relief for us when those we love most are taken away and the world feels empty. It can bring down one who can fill the gap in our hearts with himself and say to the waves within, Peace be still. Oh, that men were not so like Hagar in the wilderness, blind to the well-being well of living waters close behind them. I want you to be happy. I trust I have brought before you things that will be seriously considered. I heartily pray, God, that this consideration may be blessed to your soul. I know I cannot ask you a more useful question than this. Do you pray? Amen. So by way of conclusion, um, I wrote this down in my notes. Uh, Just a a little pithy one-liner. Saved people or praying people? And I think that that would summarize everything that Ryle has been saying over the past seven sections. And the next section, fittingly, is going to talk about his pastoral advice to those who are not converted, to those who are unsaved, and how prayer should factor in to them as an unbeliever and in terms of them going from being a non-believer to a Christian. I'm really looking forward to getting into those weeds with you guys during our next lesson. But for now, um, just want us to conclude, uh, of course, before we transition into our time of group prayer, to remind ourselves that to be saved is to be a praying people. We need to be those who go before God in prayer, not not just because we're commanded to do so, not just because we feel obligated to do so, but because we want to, because it's a joy, because we know God uses prayer to accomplish his purpose, because we know that God delights to hear the prayer of his children, just as a father or a mother delights to hear from their beloved children. So um, that's why I want us to, to leave this lesson. And for the listener, As always, I pray that this study was of use to you, that it was a blessing to your soul, and uh, we just encourage you to draw near to the Lord in prayer tonight as uh, you draw uh, this lesson to a conclusion on your side of things. I hope you had a Merry Christmas, and God bless you.